All right, good morning. Glad to see you this morning on this first Sunday in December. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Beginning today, as Jim mentioned earlier, we are starting a new series on the Gospel of Luke. Our habit at Free Money Free here is to take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse. The reason we do that is because we believe that this book really is the Word of God. As much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. When we preach through a book of the Bible verse by verse, it gives us the best opportunity for that to happen. The Word of God sets the agenda because the topic is determined by the next passage in the book that we're preaching on. And the beauty of that approach is that there is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide. Sometimes there are things in the Word of God that make us uncomfortable and challenge our way of thinking. But if the Bible really is the Word of God, which we believe that it is, those are exactly the types of things that we need to hear. When we gather together on Sunday mornings, you don't need a pep talk or a fluffy message about vague morality. You certainly don't need another person shouting into the echo chamber of modern thinking, telling you it's okay to do what everyone else is doing. What you need and what I need when we gather on Sunday mornings is to hear from the Word of God. And I'm convinced that preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse gives us the best opportunity for that to happen. So practically what that means is we just finished a series on the book of Ezra, which is in the Old Testament. And this morning we are starting a new series on the Gospel of Luke. Now as you might suspect if you've read Luke before, this will not be a short series. By both word count and verse count, the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. It's also a crucial book in understanding God's plan of salvation that comes to fruition through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're trying to understand who Jesus is or how he fits into the overall storyline of Scripture, the Gospel of Luke is one of the best places you could start. Now, the author of the Gospel of Luke, as you might guess, is a guy named Luke. Luke was a physician and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was also a meticulous historian. And the Gospel of Luke is his attempt to put together the historical account of God's plan of salvation as carried out through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now you may know this, but Luke wrote a sequel to his Gospel, the book of Acts, which describes the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through the church. We actually preached on Acts a few years ago. But beginning this morning, our task is to dive into the prequel, the Gospel of Luke. Now, as we begin to try to wrap our minds around this gospel and what it entails, it's helpful for us that Luke begins his gospel with a bit of a purpose statement. In the first four verses of the book, which are known as the prologue, Luke explains what he's trying to do and why he's trying to do it. So we're going to start to try to make sense of the gospel of Luke, which is our goal, and it's probably helpful for us to start there this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. I'm not going to have you stand yet. We're going to stand later when we read the rest of the passage, verses 5 to 25. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. You can follow the words on the screen or just listen as I read. But verses 1 to 4 says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now in the original Greek, verses 1 to 4 comprise just one long sentence, and that's actually reflected in most English translations. Some Greek scholars would actually argue that this sentence found in Luke 1, verses 1 to 4, is one of the most beautifully written sentences in all of first century Greek literature. But while that's good to know, is I think it helps us understand Luke's meticulous nature, it's the actual content of what Luke says in verses 1 to 4 I think is most relevant for us this morning. 
Because again, in his content of what he says in the prologue, Luke helps us understand what he's doing in writing his gospel and why he's doing it. In verses 1 to 4, Luke establishes that his work has precedent, that there are others have tried to do something similar to what he's done. He highlights the trustworthy nature of his sources, eyewitnesses. He points out that his work is a result of careful research and consideration. And then he concludes by stating that he's presenting, an orderly, he's presenting his work in an orderly fashion because he wants a man named Theophilus to have certainty regarding the things that have been taught. Now, we're not sure who Theophilus is, but in ancient literature, it was not uncommon for an author to dedicate his writing to an individual with the understanding that his work would then be read by a much larger audience. It seems to be what's happening here. Luke may be addressing Theophilus, but he's really speaking to anyone who has an interest in learning more about God's plan of salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. So here's the bottom line of what Luke's saying in verses 1 to 4. After having carefully studied the eyewitness accounts and the testimony of those who were with Jesus and exhausted all of his research, Luke is writing an organized account, not necessarily a chronological one, but an organized one, because he wants his readers to have certainty regarding the truthfulness of the message about Jesus. He wants those who are reading his gospel to be confident that the message about Jesus is both trustworthy and verifiable. More than that, he wants them to have certainty regarding God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And in saying that, let me just say this then. My goal in preaching through the gospel of Luke is the same as Luke's goal. My hope is that as we study the gospel of Luke over the next year or so, our confidence in the truthfulness of the message about Jesus Christ will grow. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who have doubts. You wonder, did Jesus really exist? Did he really die on the cross and then raise from the dead? Was he really who he said he was? Is Jesus really the only way to be saved? If that's you this morning, first of all, I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here. It's meant to be a place where you can come even if you do have doubts. But secondly, my hope is that as we study the Gospel of Luke, your confidence will grow that the message about Jesus Christ is true. In fact, wherever you are on the spectrum of confidence as it relates to the message of Jesus Christ, whether you be super confident or not confident at all, I hope that over the course of the next year plus as we study the Gospel of Luke, you will grow in certainty regarding the things that have been taught about Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's my prayer this morning that as we begin by looking at the first full passage in Luke, Luke 1, verses 5 to 25, your certainty would begin to grow even today. So that said, now if you would please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. I'm going to pray that God would help us to grow in our certainty. So the words again will be on the screen, or you can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. But Luke 1, starting in verse 5, says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John." 
and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, it is our prayer this morning that as we turn our attention here to Luke 1, verses 5 to 25, that you would help us even today to grow in certainty regarding the things about Jesus Christ. We come to you humbly this morning, acknowledging that this section of Luke that talks about the birth of Christ is one that we've often studied just because of the Christmas season. But we're praying this morning that, that we would hear this as if we're hearing it for the first time. And we're praying that as we hear it, we would grow in certainty that this message about Jesus Christ, that he came to rescue us from our sin, we would grow in certainty that message is true. Lord, I have no doubt there are some here this morning who doubt and they wonder, is Jesus who he said he is? Lord, I pray this morning that you would allow them to overcome their doubts and that they would realize it is true. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he will come again and make things right. Lord, please help us to grow in certainty regarding that message this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's a question I think we can consider this morning. If the gospel of Luke is about the person work of Jesus Christ, then why does Luke start by talking about the birth of John the Baptist? Wouldn't it make more sense to start by talking about the birth of Jesus? I mean, put it this way. If you were reading a biography about Abraham Lincoln and the book opened up with a birth account about George Washington, that would probably make you scratch your head. That seems a bit odd. And yet the gospel of Luke begins not in talking about the coming birth of Jesus Christ, but instead in talking about the coming birth of John the Baptist. And the fact that Luke does this, I think is worth noting, because I don't think it's an accident. It's not an accident that Luke puts this story at the beginning of his gospel. As we noted in our discussion of the prologue, Luke was known to be a meticulous historian. And in the prologue, he himself claimed that he was writing in an orderly fashion. So the idea here that Luke was just a sloppy writer or he didn't know how to start his story and so he's just saying, well, I don't really know where to start. I guess I'll just start with John the Baptist. That does not match up with Luke's personality or with the content of the rest of this book. Throughout the book, Luke will prove himself to be a very organized person and a very careful historian, theologian, and even pastor. So the fact that the Gospel of Luke begins with the story about the coming birth of John the Baptist is not a mistake. It's purposeful. And the fact that it is purposeful, I think, then is instructive for us. And it's instructive that it tips us off that the Gospel of Luke is not just about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Rather, it's about God's overarching plan of salvation and how Jesus fits into that plan. So yes, the Gospel of Luke is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the inclusion of this story of John the Baptist and his coming birth at the beginning of the Gospel reminds us the Gospel of Luke is about more than just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about how Jesus fits into God's overarching plan. More specifically, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist shows us that the birth of Jesus was part of God's plan of salvation established from long ago. Long before Jesus was born in a manger, God planned and promised that salvation would come through a promised Messiah. And part of his plan for that promised Messiah is that there would be one who would come before the Messiah to prepare the way. And that one to come before was John, John the Baptist. That's one of the things that Luke is driving at here in Luke chapter 1. He wants his readers to understand that John the Baptist is the one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the forerunner of the Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And Luke makes this very clear in the language of verses 16 and 17. Now let's go back to verse 13 here, because I want you to see the context. But verses 16 and 17 is where he makes it clear. John the Baptist is the one who's prophesied about. All right, so verse 13, we see this. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel tells Zechariah that the name of their son, meaning Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, will be John. And many will rejoice at his birth, and he will be great before the Lord. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, and he'll play a very specific role. He'll make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Or maybe to say more simply, he will prepare the way. And in doing so, he will fulfill God's plan of salvation established from long ago. That a Messiah would come, that's Jesus, but before the Messiah there would be a forerunner, that's John the Baptist. And to make that case clear, Luke appeals to several Old Testament texts in verses 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, he's using the language of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, which Jim read earlier. Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, verse 1, to help us understand that the coming birth of John the Baptist is a fulfillment of Scripture. John the Baptist is the coming Elijah, to use language of Malachi, who is prophesied about who would come before and prepare the way for the one to rescue. He's a sign then that the Messiah is on the way and that the time has come for God's plan of salvation to be fulfilled. The announcement of John's birth then, hear this, is not a side story. It's not the undercard for the big event. It's something that Luke includes, or it's not something that Luke includes because he doesn't know how to start a story. Rather, the foretelling of John the Baptist's birth is a necessary part of the bigger plan. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for salvation. But for the Messiah to come, in order for the scripture to be fulfilled, the forerunner had to come first, and that is John the Baptist. So the announcement of John's birth here in Luke 1 isn't just a procedural formality that allows us to move on to the main event. It's part of the main event. And it's a big moment in itself because it helps us to understand God's unfolding plan of salvation. And it helps us to realize the time of the Messiah is on the way. But also, I think that Luke 1, 5-25 helps us to see a key scriptural theme. And actually, it's that theme I want us to focus on for the rest of our time together this morning. And that theme is this, that even when things are dark, 
God is still at work. Even when things are dark, God is still at work. Now, I think the main point of Luke 1, 5-25 is that John the Baptist's birth is a sign that the coming Messiah is on the way and that the time for God's plan of salvation is now drawn near. But that main point also helps to bring out this key scriptural theme that we see in this passage, that even when things are dark, God is still at work. And I think we see that theme in two different ways in Luke 1, verses 5 to 25. We see it on a big picture level, but we also see it on an individual level. And I want you to see both in this passage. Again, the theme that we're thinking about here this morning in Luke 1, 5 to 25, is that even when things are dark, God is still at work. And that's true in a big picture sense in this passage. Look first at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now this verse is important because the mention of Herod in verse 5 helps us to understand the general timeline for the events that we're reading about in Luke 1. Herod reigned from approximately 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., Almost certainly the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus took place towards the end of Herod's reign, somewhere around 7 to 5 B.C. Now, comparatively, the last events that were recorded in the Old Testament took place around 430 B.C. So what that means then is that there was a period of about 400 years between the last events recorded in the Old Testament and what we see happening here in Luke 1. Those 400 years are sometimes referred to as the 400 years of silence. During that time, there's no indication that God was speaking through his prophets or that the Spirit was active in any sort of unique way. Instead, there was 400 years of just silence. And I suppose that this should go without saying, but it's probably worth saying anyway. 400 years is a really, really long time. Earlier this week, Tony and I were debating about something that happened a couple of years ago. And we were having this debate because neither one of us could remember exactly what had happened. It had been a couple years, and so our memories were foggy. So at least in that moment, for us, two years seemed like ancient history. But to state the obvious, 400 years is a lot longer than two years. Even compared to the history of the United States, 400 years is a long time. The United States has only been a country for 247 years. So tack on another 153 years to our current year and transport yourself to the year 2176, And then you can get a feel for how long 400 years is. 400 years of silence. 400 years of watching and waiting. 400 years of wondering, is God still at work? Has he forgotten us? No doubt those 400 years of silence must have been dark. And the people of God must have wondered often, where's God? Why won't he move? When will we see his hand again? Has he forgotten us? When is he going to send the Messiah? But Luke 1, verses 5 to 25, and even all the allusions to Old Testament Scripture being fulfilled, reminds us that he'd never forgotten his people. It reminds us that he was still at work, that he was still on the move, that he is not dead. Even though it may have been very dark prior to the birth of the Messiah, Luke 1, 5 to 25 reminds us that God was still at work. He'd not forgotten his people. He'd not forgotten his promises. So on a big picture level, we see here in Luke 1, 5 to 25, that even when things are dark, even when it seems like there's no hope, God is still at work. But we also see this on an individual level in this story. Through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
we're reminded that when things are dark on a personal level for the people of God, God is still at work in that too. Look at verses 5 to 7 here. So again, verse 5, which we read just a second ago, but let's go through verse 7 this time. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we're told here in verse 5 that Zechariah was a priest. We're also told, given the lineage that's mentioned about Elizabeth, that she too was from a line of a priest. Both were righteous, we're told in verse 6, and walked blamelessly before God. And yet, despite their family lineage, despite their morality, their moral uprightness, they were childless. Elizabeth was barren, and now they were too old to have children. Now, in that day and age, childlessness was often seen to be a punishment from God and would lead to reproach from others. And although the text is very careful here to point out that in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, their barrenness had nothing to do with sin or moral defect, it's obvious given the way this story unfolds and even given the way it ends in verse 25 with mention of reproach, that their circumstance of childlessness for Zechariah and Elizabeth must have been very, very painful. Very difficult. And yet, as the text reminds us, even in the personal darkness of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God was still at work. He was setting up a better story. And that better story starts to unfold in verse 9 with talk of Zechariah offering up incense. That's probably helpful to know a little bit about what's happening here in verse 9. For a priest like Zechariah, the opportunity to offer incense in the holy place would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, literally. Given the amount of priests that existed at the time, priests were chosen by lot to go and offer up incense in preparation for the sacrificial offering. A priest could only be chosen for this honor once in their lifetime. And some priests were never chosen at all. And so it just so happens that on the biggest day of his professional career, when Zechariah is chosen by lot to go into the holy place, God chooses to reveal himself to Zechariah. And God chooses to reveal to Zechariah that he and Elizabeth, meaning Zechariah and Elizabeth, are going to have a child. Now, lest you think here that perhaps Zechariah and Elizabeth were just a little bit older, maybe they're late 30s or early 40s and thus less likely to have a child, Zechariah's response in verse 18 informs us not only was it unlikely that they would have a baby, at least in Zechariah's mind, it was impossible. We don't know how old Zechariah and Elizabeth were when the events of Luke 1 take place, but they are old enough that when Zechariah hears that Elizabeth's going to have a child, he finds that to be an impossible story. There is no way that could happen. Now, to be sure, Zechariah's unbelief is not something that is viewed positively in the story. In fact, it costs him dearly and that he's unable to speak for months. There's even some indication in the text that perhaps he was deaf too. But this lack of belief clues us in to the impossibility of events in Luke 1 and helps us to understand the truly unexpected nature of John's birth. At the beginning of Luke 1, Zechariah and Elizabeth are without child and without hope of child. But by the end of Luke 1, they're filled with joy and gratitude and there is a baby in their arms. And in that story of reversal, from barrenness to joy, From lack of hope to life, we're once again reminded that even when things are dark, God is still at work. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, perhaps it felt at times that God had forgotten them. But in the account of Luke 1, it's clear God had not forgotten them. Instead, he had a different plan for them. Even in their personal darkness, he was still working. 
And so in both a big picture sense, meaning the people of God, and in an individual sense, meaning individuals like Zechariah and Elizabeth, God is at work even in the dark. And I suspect maybe that's something you need to hear today. Maybe in a big picture sense, you're concerned about the direction we're headed. You hear about things happening in the world or in our country, and you wonder, where is this going? Luke 1 reminds us, even when it's dark, God has not abandoned his people. He's still at work. Maybe for some of you, though, the question isn't so much big picture as it is your own personal life. Your life feels like a mess. Maybe you're dealing with health issues, or maybe, maybe there's financial struggles, or maybe parenting is just hard right now. And so as it relates to your personal life, you're wondering, where is all this headed? But again, Luke 1 reminds us that even when it's dark in your own personal life, God is still at work. It's not just that he cares about the big picture, although he does, but God cares for the Zacharias and Elizabeths too. Even in the darkness of the personal lives of his people, he is still at work. And in saying that, here's my hope this morning. My hope is that that the reality of God being at work even in the dark is something that that doesn't just encourage you theoretically this morning, but practically too. So to that end, what I want to do in the rest of our time together is simply give you a few action steps in light of this theme that even in the dark, God is still working in light of what we read here in Luke 1. All right, so action step number one, trust God and take heart. Trust God and take heart. Listen, I love the way that Zechariah and Elizabeth are described in verse 6. And in particular, I love that they're described the way they are given what we read in verse 7. So let's go back again. I, just, I want you to hear this again because I think it's important that you see what's happening here. Verse 6, and they are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Listen, if everything in your life is cotton candy and rainbows, if everything is easy, if everything is going exactly how you'd hoped, well, it's pretty easy to trust God, or at least it feels like it should be. But the question is, when things are hard, when the fog closes in, and darkness descends on your life. The question is, will you trust God then? Now, obviously, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they'd experienced great heartache in their lives. They dealt with the pain of infertility and childlessness. As evidenced by the language of verse 25, they've also apparently dealt with reproach, as others had mocked them and maligned them because of their childlessness. But despite the difficulty of their lives, it's clear, given what we read in verse 6, that they did not live a life of anger or bitterness or hostility. Instead, as described in verse 6, even though they were walking through these painful circumstances, they were still righteous before God. They both walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, what we're saying is this, despite the darkness of their circumstances, they didn't lose heart. Rather than being swayed by their circumstances, they kept trusting God. Earlier this week, I was talking with a friend of mine about the challenges and difficulties of this life. And one of the things we talked about is that there's a constant battle to keep the promises of God and the character of God and the word of God in our face to remember these things rather than viewing the world through the lens of our circumstances. It's easy to lose sight of these things that we know to be true about God and start to just look out at the world around us to fixate on our difficulties, to see the world through the lens of our financial hardships or our relational challenges or our health problems. And assume that as we look at those circumstances, God must not love us or he must not care. But clearly, Zachariah and Elizabeth had made a conscious choice to remember the character of God, to put the character of God in their face, 
to trust God even though their circumstances were difficult. Now eventually, God would tangibly remind them he was at work in their darkness. But I love that the description of verse 6 comes before that reminder. Even when things were still hard, even when they were still living in this reproach and difficulty, they still trusted God and took heart. Listen, church, I don't know what your struggles are that you're facing today. I don't know what particular challenges you might be dealing with. Maybe some of you are in high school, and it feels like your friend world is collapsing around you. Or maybe you're in college, and and it just hasn't gone the way that you thought it would. Or maybe you're a working person, and your job is just miserable. Or maybe you got a call from the doctor this week, and it seems that there might be some bad news on the way. Or maybe you lost a loved one, and it feels like the grief will never end. Or maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, let me encourage you this morning, in the midst of the darkness of your personal life, trust God and take heart. Even in the darkness, as we're reminded in the story, in both the big picture sense and the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God is still working. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, it must have felt to them like God had forgotten them. This story reminds us he hadn't. Even in their darkness, he was still at work. And if you're in Christ and you know Jesus, the same is true for you. No matter what darkness you're going through, he has not forgotten you. So trust God and take heart. Action point number two, keep praying. Keep praying. Look again at Zechariah's interaction with the angel in verses 8 to 13. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. I think it's worth pausing here and just thinking about Zechariah's response to the angel. Because Zechariah's response to the angel is pretty typical of what we see in Scripture when people encounter God or one of God's representatives. Almost universally, those who encounter God in his holiness are filled with fear because they immediately recognize that God is not like them. There's an otherness to God. And that's probably worth keeping in mind when people around us are talking about God in irreverent or flippant ways. God is not like us. And those that think that they would stand before God and give them a piece of, of their or give him a piece of their mind, do not understand who he is. He is not like us. Nevertheless, it's not just Zechariah's response to the angel that I think is worth noting. It's also the response of the angel to Zechariah. Look one more time at verse 13. The angel says this, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. The question is here, what is the prayer the angel is talking about? Now it's possible the angel could be referring to Zechariah praying for a coming Messiah. But given that the angel connects the mention of prayer to Elizabeth having a child, it seems more likely here that the prayer in reference is a prayer for Elizabeth's barrenness to be reversed. Now, given his role as a priest and what was expected of a priest in the holy place, namely that he would not pray for himself, but rather for the people of God, it seems highly unlikely, also given his response in verse 18 of unbelief, it seems highly unlikely that Zechariah was praying in that moment for Elizabeth to have a child. So the most likely explanation of the prayer in reference here is a previous prayer for Elizabeth to have a child. A prayer at some point that Zechariah must have prayed before the Lord, asking God, please intervene, let my wife have a child. Now, who knows how many times Zechariah had prayed this prayer? Who knows how long it had been since he prayed the prayer? 
But the bottom line here is that the angel Gabriel reassures Zechariah, God heard your prayer. And in that we're reminded of this, that God's prayers or God's answers to our prayers don't always come in the way that we expect or when we expect them. But know this, God always hears. Now sometimes he hears our prayers and answers immediately. Sometimes he hears our prayers and answers much later. Sometimes he hears our prayers and decides that he'll answer in a different way because he knows what's better. But know this, he always hears. Again, given Zechariah's response in verse 18, you would have to conclude that at some point, Zechariah decided God's just not going to answer that prayer. But in his graciousness here in Luke 1, God answers the prayer anyway. And in the process, he would also answer the prayer for a deliverer for Israel. In other words, God's answer to Zechariah's prayer was much more than he could have asked for or imagined. And in light of that, I think the response for us then this morning is pretty simple. Keep praying. Keep praying. Now I'm saying that I get that sometimes prayer feels hard and it feels like God is not answering. So it feels challenging for me to say keep praying. Even on a personal level, there are many things that I've been praying for in our family related to health issues over the last four years that just haven't happened. But this passage reminds me, and I hope it reminds you too, don't give up. Even in the darkness, God is still hearing our prayers. And perhaps someday he'll respond to our prayer in a way that we weren't expecting or at a time that we weren't expecting either. So keep praying. But know this, even if he doesn't answer our prayers now, there will come a day when he will make things right. And that brings us to the third and most important point of this passage. If we're talking about action point. I think the third is the most important. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Listen, John's birth, no doubt, is a big deal. It's not a side story. It's not the undercard. It's part of the main story. But having said that, what makes John's birth significant is what comes next. And what comes next is the birth of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, the angel says that John will be great before the Lord. But what makes John great is one thing, that he was preparing the way for the Lord and that he knew his only job was to point to Jesus. John understood that this was his task. In John 3.30, when John's, when John's disciples are worried about John fading to the background because Jesus has no come on the scene, John plainly and unequivocally tells them this. He says, he, meaning Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. John knew that the sole purpose of his life was to point to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he embraced that role with every fiber of his being. So know this then, the good news of Luke 1, 5-25 is not that Zechariah and Elizabeth remain steadfast in the dark, or that God answers Zechariah's prayer. Now both of those things are good news, and they're both worth noting. But the good news, or the best news of this passage, is that the Savior is on the way. Jesus is coming. And he would live a perfect life. He would die on the cross for our sins. He would raise three days later. He would ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again and he will make things right. And so if you're wondering, well, how do I know that God is at work even in the darkness of my own life? How do I know that God is at work even in the darkness of the world around us? The answer is Jesus. We know that God is at work in the dark because he sent his son to die for our sins. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he comes again, those who are with him will reign with him forever in glory. And there will be no more sickness no more sorrow and no more death. 
And the promise of that reality is what gives us hope even on the darkest of days. So listen, church, whatever circumstance you may be in right now, whatever darkness you may be facing, let me encourage you this morning, God is still at work. So trust Him. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. And most importantly, look to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. The one who came to rescue us from our sin. The one who came to bring us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we know that we've heard this story before about the birth of John the Baptist. We know that we've read these two chapters in Luke probably more than most just because at the Christmas season we often turn our attention to chapters like these. But God, I pray that we would hear them this morning with fresh ears, that we would hear them this morning, and that we would take what we've just learned and that we would have greater certainty that you are who you say you are and we can trust you. God, someone here, no doubt, this morning are walking through darkness. They're walking through a difficult time. I pray that they would be steadfast and take heart. They would trust you. I pray that they would keep praying, keep seeing you, keep seeking you. And ultimately, I pray that they would look to the hope found in Jesus and the reminder that even in the darkness, you are still at work. Please help us to be encouraged by that reality this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even in the darkness.